Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians. It's very interesting that he uh, is talking to a church that uh, is greatly enamored with uh, spiritual gifts and a church that has all kinds of problems, a church that uh, uh, there's an undercurrent, and it really gets to full manifestation in 2 Corinthians that is really ousting Paul. There's a party growing in that church that want to oust any influence he has. It's one of the most painful letters in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians, because he tells of his agony of people that he led to the Lord turning on him and turning to another gospel, turning to the wisdom of Greece and Athens, and a church with lots of problems, but they were quite puffed up about the spiritual gifts they possessed. And so in the middle of the gift discussion, chapter 12 and 14, he inserts this one chapter on love. It, he didn't all of a sudden get in a romantic mood and say, well, I'm just writing a little poetry on love. No, he said, no, let me tell you, love is what ought to run the church. And love is an abstract concept. Uh, you can make love mean anything you want. So he takes and he adds to the abstract noun, love. He gives you 15 verbs to tell you what God's love acts like. So you don't get to invent the definition. And so he's unpackaging it and rolling out the love I'm talking about, God's kind of love, acts this way when it's in Christ, it's in God's nature, and it will be manifested in you one toward another. And so he's going to say, as we continue to look, three things you want to consider. Number one, the preeminence of love. First three verses. Love must be preeminent. If I do anything that's not motivated or... Uh, used in love, it profits nothing. So love must be preeminent. Then he describes love in the perfections of love, 15 descriptions he gives of it. And then his final point that he makes in the chapters, the permanence of love. All this other stuff will pass away. Why not pour our lives into that which lasts forever, the permanence of love? So let's pick up uh, we left off last week at verse 5. I'll begin at verse 4 and get the flow. Love is patient. Now, if you ever want a little test on yourself, try it this way and, and just do the opposite. Selfishness is not patient, is not kind, uh, is envious. But we're talking about love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Wow, how many years of marriage did it take you to learn that? I used to win all arguments in my marriage, but I kept losing the gal. Do you want to win the argument or win the gal? It will not insist on its own way. One guy said he was told by a counselor that when you get angry and you're not getting your way, just go for a walk. And he said he's had the life of an outdoorsman. <laughs> so it, it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. When we pick up now, 
It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It's really one statement there. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, never falls, never comes short. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I've been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Um, the test of Christianity is whether you've matured enough to love. It's one of the first things God does in our heart is begin to teach us how to love. It reminds me of the uh, couple that were uh, having all kinds of uh, marital problems. And finally, the husband, uh, they quit talking to each other. And of course, you always think it's your mate that needs the help. And so he sent her to therapy for about 10 weeks sign up. And uh, after about nine weeks, the counselor wasn't getting anywhere, finally demanded that the husband come in. And uh, out of frustration, the counselor, trying to get through what your wife needs is that, to know that you love her, that you have affection for her. And out of frustration, the counselor got up, and he just walked around, and he kissed Mrs. Jones passionately. And her, light, her face just lit up. She just began to shine. And all of a sudden, her husband took the counselor in the other room and said, what did you do to my wife? He said, well, you saw I showed her some affection. She came alive. He said, she needs something like this at least three times a week. He said, well, I could only bring her in on Monday. <laughs> and see, some folks never get it. They never get it that love, they've got to be taught how to love. But we can recommend a counselor if you want one that's passionate in their kiss. But they just don't get it. So he's telling this church, here, I want you to learn that, first of all, that love never rejoices in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in the truth. There's an old a statement that says, uh, when does a thief quit being a thief? When you put him in jail? No, nope, no. Nope. A thief quits being a thief when he learns how to work for a living. You see, he, you don't, He's never changed until he replaces a negative activity with a positive one. And he's saying love never finds any pleasure in wrongdoing, unrighteousness. But on the other hand, it's something that loves the truth. Love is not neutral about wrong. Sometimes we got love as this gooey, syrupy uh, uh, the, the mother who says, my child could never do anything wrong while they're burning your house down. Says, oh, no, no, love is not 
that's sentimental. Love cannot endorse wrongdoing. We truth in love. A lot of people said, all we need to do is love, love, love. No, what kind of love? Not the love that endorses everything, that everything's all right. Luther once said, if you boast with the highest voice uh, your love of the truth and you abandon truth at that place that it's being attacked, you don't believe the truth no matter how long you pledge your loyalty. You must stand up for truth where it's being attacked the most. Do we love unrighteousness? It's amazing that uh, Hollywood produces very few films that have any virtues, any really great value that you would uh, see it. I'm not afraid of the medium. What bothers me is the message. I'm not afraid of a theater. Uh, I take in at least uh, one and a half movies a year. I just can't find anything worth watching. I could enjoy a big screen, a big presentation, but let's go see some adultery tonight for some attention and just for a little bit of mental relief. Let's go see someone get killed. Let's go see animation because they can't present reality. Reality is so depressing, we've learned to animate. Let's go watch Shrek. He's pretty good. I try to say I'm watching with my grandchildren. I'm the one that's captured the grandchildren run off play. And Shrek is great. But it's tough to be a loving person and dealing with people that don't love the right. And he says that love loves the truth, not unrighteousness. It was a Moody that once said, why is it that a lie could be halfway around the world before truth gets out of bed and puts on its shoes? Why is it that rumors and gossip goes quicker than truth? Because people love gossip. They love unrighteousness. Because uh, your faults make them look better. If I could talk about what's wrong with you, I may never have to deal with what's wrong with me. So we just kind of feed off the faults and the unrighteous deeds of others. He goes on to say that uh, love uh, bears all things. And, and that's quite a concept, that love bears all things. Now, Jonathan Edwards understands this word to be, it can suffer anything for the gospel, and he might be right. Uh, that it really is pointing to bearing up under ill treatment for Christ's sake. There's three different concepts loaded in this little word. It was actually used of a rooftop. It was used that way in the Gospels. So it was used of, of a covering. It was used of making a ship watertight so that water couldn't get in. So it was used of a safe vessel. In essence, you had the leaks covered. Everything was covered so you're okay but it was also used of pillars of a building that which held up so it had this idea of bears all things it can hold things up so in all the field of meanings it probably has it can endure it can it's already said that though love can endure and it's going to say it again but when it bears up maybe the idea is it's willing to cover it's willing to uh, uh, 
Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers a multitude of sin. There's some people you can never cover it. It will always be public, and it will always be fresh because there's nothing in them to cover it. Have you ever had people, don't ever cross me, I'll never forget it. Don't ever cross me. I'll never, never let you forget it. Um, I think John Ross's father, he was a straight arrow. He was a no-mess kind of a guy. And he grew up uh, as a, with a pastor as his father. And he'd been through a lot of church life by the time I met him. And he was so good to me, so kind, so supportive. But he was a strict person, very strict. And uh, one day I, I told him, I said, you know, Phil, you, you couldn't be better to me than if I were your son. Uh, he and Luella just took Carol and I under their wing. And I said, but you know what my fear is? And he said, what's that? I said, I'm afraid of disappointing you. And you can't watch me too long without me. I'm for sure I can guarantee that I'll disappoint you. Let me right now do something bad to you so we get rid of that. I need to get the pressure off. You know, people do that, and, and young preachers just love it. You're the best pastor we've ever had for the meantime. Until you goof up, until you do something we don't like. Oh, man, and you're trying to, you're living with this expectation. I got to do this, this right. I got to do that. Well, I just want to cuss to get it over with. Wait, 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 I'm just a sinner saved by grace. What about you? I don't want to rob a bank, and I don't want to be immoral. But let's not get to expecting too much here, because I could surely disappoint you. But you know what? Even have you ever had someone sin against you or fail you, but you forgave it? And it's not on the surface when they come in the room. It's not in the front of your mind every time you see them. Or every time you see them, that guy did me wrong. When will you let it go? Love can bear up under all kinds of treatment. Love can say, I forgive the men crucifying me. It can bear up, hold up, withstand anything. We're just wimpy, and we're conditional in love. God's not that way. He put up with your sin for years before he ever saved you, and he's been putting up with it since he did save you. And he's covering you, covering you, covering you. All you do is confess it, and he covers it. And then he says, I'm producing a people that learn to interrelate to one another with this willingness to cover it, to forgive it. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. What a powerful, powerful concept. Uh, it, it's willing to overlook. It's willing to uh, go on. And, uh, you know, I'm glad the mother forgets all the diapers she changed by the time the boy graduates from college. The diapers are behind and she's gone on. What she remembers is how much she loved that child. Not all the mess and the cleaning up and all the, the, the milk that was spilt. Seemed like at our house every night, one of the girls spilt the milk, and I'd go ballistic. 
I don't know how many gallons of milk we just spilt on the table. I was fun to have dinner with. And uh, one night, Carolyn says, boy, it'd be nice to have some joy at this table. I said, I'm just seeing who's going to spill the milk. She said, get over it. Don't marry a godly woman because she will clean your clock all the time. She said, well, these kids remember our eating times, a time of joy, or dad sitting there watching to see if they spill milk. Well, people are going to spill a lot of milk in life. You might as well learn how to bear up with it and forgive it. And the church just stares at each other on that. <laughs> Love believes all things. Now, oh my, that sounds to me like love is gullible. Is love gullible? Hey man, the moon is made of cheese. I believe it. Hey, the Lord told me you need to give me your house. I don't believe it. What does it mean? It believes all things. It's not talking about being gullible or naive. Proverbs teaches totally against that. It's an idea, I think, that it's uh, uh, optimistic. Uh, you know, the way you live life, if you've got a jaundiced eye, everything you see is yellow. If you go into life and you're totally, you, do you know people that says, I will never trust anyone, as though that's a virtue? I had a preacher tell me one time, and he's kind of talking to me directly. He says, you know what? I don't trust you that much. I said, why? He said, I'm a Calvinist. I said, what do you mean? He said, I believe in depravity so much that I don't think I could trust you. And I said, well, Mr. Calvin, you're depraved too. So I can't even trust what you just said, Mr. Depraved. Who can? You should never get married. And there's a whole generation that says, I won't. I've never met a woman I can trust. I've never met a man I will trust. We might have sex. We might live together, but I'm not forming any union that say trust is on the table. So we've got a totally distrusting couple. I think as much of youth, when I've grown up in a broken home, when I've grown up around the drug culture, when my mom has not been there, maybe my daddy has abandoned me. Uh, who can you trust if you can't trust your parents? And if they're not there, I sure don't trust anyone beyond the home limits. But love, God's love enables you to believe, to be trusting, to be positive going in. I believe all things. I'll deal with what comes, but I'm not naive because love is not stupid. It makes a choice knowing I'm loving a fallible creature. And he says this love, it bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, uh, it's so optimistic. It's easy to write off people, but love just keeps hoping, keeps hoping. And you know, when you walk by faith, he says he fills you with love. Love and faith and hope all run together. You see it all over. They're me we're measured in your maturity. If I just took your temperature today and wanted to know if you're healthy starting a new year, I would just say, what is your faith temperature, what is your hope temperature, and what is your love temperature? Then I would know if you were healthy. Hope, faith, and love, those three components. If you're doing all right there, you're healthy. But if you're in unbelief, or if you've lost hope, 
or if you've given up on love, then I know you're sick. There's something wrong in your soul. So he says, this love, it hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. Now he says something, I think, and uses three illustrations to blow them away. By the way, guys, gifts are going to pass away. Prophecy, knowledge, tongues. For when the perfect thing comes, verse 10, when that which is perfect comes, the parcel will pass away. And then he gives the illustration. When I was a child, I acted like a child, I thought like a child, but I became a man. And, and you just see stage of life. These things were appropriate to my childhood. I don't even deal with them anymore. How many things do you have from your childhood? Have anything from your childhood around your house? I got my train set. I got up so high, the grandchildren can't get it. Electric train. I kept that. I've got my pair of house shoes since I was 16. I got them up there. Because remember, I used to walk in those. And then I got a ball. No, I got a football that I got in the fourth grade. See, most kids tear up everything. As soon as I got my gifts, I ran into my bedroom and hid them, put them away, because they had to last. I grew up in the projects. It wasn't going to keep getting stuff. You better guard that football until you die. And we had a bulldog in my neighborhood. If you threw a ball and you missed, he'd bite that ball just like that, too late. I still have a pigskin football. That's about all I've got few memories. And he says, when you move from childhood to adulthood, things just drop off. No big deal. They get it. He goes on to say, we now see in a mirror dimly, like in a riddle. They had bronze mirrors, so it wasn't clear like ours. It was a distorted image at best, but we see dimly as in a riddle now, but there's coming a time when we'll see face to face. Wow. The fullest disclosure. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. This is a very interesting passage. There's probably uh, three views going on it. When I first started Valley, this chapter and the understanding of it, I understood it to be the New Testament canon, and it was one of the things that helped me uh, in my transition from a Pentecostal preacher uh, to this church uh, that I said, I don't think all the gifts are around today, and that, that certainly brought some renting and relationships. Uh, but as I look at this now, I think it's the first time now in 40 years I've changed my mind. He's not really talking about the gift ceasing here any particular point in time because they're all going to cease eventually, aren't they? Did you know after the rapture of the church, the gift of prophecy is still going on? The two witnesses prophesy in Revelation 11. There's prophecy uh, going on in the millennium, Joel chapter 2. It started at Pentecost. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy in the kingdom. So there'll be prophecy in the thousand-year reign of Christ. So we know that prophecy will be around even to the millennium. So it hasn't totally ceased yet. 
some other, and I'm a cessationist. I don't think there's any more apostles, do you? I think the church was built on apostles. Foundation prophets and apostles has already been established. And when we get to chapter 14, I'll tell you what I think about tongues and what it was really intended for. And I grew up being a tongue talker, so don't try to convince me. I know all about it. I loved it. I've been hoping some of you'd get it, but you know, that's okay. Uh, but I don't really think the canon of scriptures in view, the three views that are most prevalent is, this is saying when the perfect is coming, they say when the New Testament's completed, these gifts will pass away. And I can give you a thoroughgoing argument for that. That was so convincing, I bought it for 39 years. I, it was a strong argument. The other view would, that's kind of a new view is that when the church is perfect, when it's completed, Ephesians 4, when it comes to complete maturity, uh, then uh, the gifts will pass away. And that's a view I used to argue a lot with some of my profs because that was a view I used to hold also. I've held all of them, I think. Uh, and then the third view is that the perfect is probably the eternal that when we're in eternity, what will last? Gifts are for this transitory passing through time of the church, that we need the gift of knowledge, the gift of all the gifts. We need them at some phase of the church. Now, we know that by 100 AD, there were no more apostles around. Tongues in church history ceased. Uh, no prophets at, at that time. A lot of things ceased just naturally by 100 AD. John wrote Revelation about 90, 95 A.D. So what he's really saying is, hey, don't fall in love with what's temporary. Don't fall in love with what's transitory. Gifts will fall off. Gifts are for the church now. Gifts help us mature. He's not against gifts. He's just saying in the priority of things, love will outlast all gifts, pastor, teachers, teachers, evangelists, there will be a day there will be no gifts. And when we have that day, we'll really know. Like right now, we think we know, but we see dimly, even what we've been illumined, wait until it's face-to-face -face mentoring, face-to-face -face with God the Son. So at least know that this is a temporary run with gifts. Don't fall in love with that. The thing that is permanent, the thing that will outlast everything is love. And so you've got to ask yourself, am I doing that thing which is eternal? Am I doing that thing which is eternal? Uh, I think we need to ask ourselves as we start a new year, uh, how is my love quotient doing? How am I loving people? Now, you know, Chapman wrote a book on the love languages, and some the love language is affection, some it's gifts, some it's time, some it's words. It doesn't matter how you express your love, are you expressing it? Is it getting out? To love and not communicate it is worthless to the objects. I use that worn phrase I so many, use so many times. If you love me, you don't tell me or show me in a concrete way. It's like winking at your girlfriend in the dark. 
it doesn't do a bit of good. How do people understand that you're loving them? And if the quotient is fallen way off, you ought to ask yourself as you begin a new year, uh, if the badge of my identity, they shall know you because you love one another, uh, are you known as a follower of Christ or as a cranky, bitter, unforgiving, non-loving person? If you're that way, you can come to Christ and he'll begin to turn you into a lover. What is tragic is to claim to be a believer and be that way. Something's happened. You have to be careful lest you lose it. Christ is the model, but there's something you need to ask. Am I loving my neighbor? Am I loving the brethren? Am I loving God? Now, God's not hard to love, is he? He's never asked me for a loan. I like people who don't want to borrow money. He never needs anything. He ought to be easy to love. But John said, you don't love God any more than you love the brother you see. So the full measure of your love is how you treat the brethren. Now, um, let me just show you three things I'd be praying about this year. Look at 2 Corinthians, okay? 2 Corinthians 6. Sometimes we get spiritual cramps. And notice what he says about it. Verse 11, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, widen your hearts also. You know what he's saying? He's saying to the Corinthians, it doesn't cramp me to love you. The word literally means to be cramped, not enough room. It's the idea. And he says, uh, you're restrained. And the word there is cramped. You, you, it is just killing you to love me. You know why? You don't have enough room in your heart for me. You don't have enough room to breathe. It cramps your style. And Paul said, I'm not restraining you. I'm loving you. And some of you need to get over spiritual cramps this year and ask God to enlarge your heart that you can love. You ought to have people of different ethnicities in your home. You ought to try that. It's one thing to come in this building together. Do you ever have anybody with a different color than you in your home? Why don't you? You're not a racist, are you? No races in this church. Who knows? You're just stuck with one another here. You, man, why are they coming here? You ought to have someone in your home with a different color. Different, you ought to have someone in your home at a different economic status. And I'm thinking primarily that has less than you of which you could be good to them. 
or does that, is that a, does that cramp you? The cramps is because the heart has shrunk and there's no room there for the affection. Ask God to deliver you from spiritual cramps. I just don't, I got this little small circle of people that I think are worthy of my love because my heart has shrunk. I think what we've got to really do is be in each other's homes, each other's lives, crossing color lines, uh, economic lines. Got any poor people in your life that you ever help that you invite to your house? You never expect to go to their house. You just love them because you love them not to get anything back, not a reciprocal relationship necessarily, but you just want to be good to them. Um. I think another thing is we turn, let's just keep turning through a Bible here. I want to break it in for you. I've got a new Bible here, so I have the gold on. It looks bad for a preacher with gold on their Bible. Uh, chapter 2 of Revelation. Um, this has always scared me. It still scares me. Did you know Paul founded the church at Ephesus? Did you know Paul pastored there, was there for three years? taught day and night. Do you know that Timothy pastored there? Do you know that John the Beloved pastored? You can't get a greater profile of pastors than John the Apostle, Paul the Apostle, and Timothy an understudy. Now, come on. Don't tell me they didn't have sound teaching. Don't tell me they, weren't, they didn't hear the word. They heard the word. They heard the word. And by 90 AD, they're losing out. They're losing out. And he writes, Christ does. I know your works, your toil and your patience, endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. You've tested them who call themselves apostles but are found to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, patiently bearing with all this. Yet you, not even grown weary in this, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at the first. What was that they had at the first? We call it the first love, and it's really the word, the best love. The best love. You gave up the best love for lesser things, but had they quit going to church? Absolutely not. He said they were hating the doctrines of the Nicolaitans, which was a false teaching group. So, man, they were astute in opposing wrong doctrine. Had they given up the women's auxiliary and the deacons who were sweating, setting up tables and work? He said, no, you're laboring to the point of exhaustion. He uses a strong, you're patiently bearing up. You're setting up buildings. You're having church. All of that's going on. There's just one thing missing. There's not that temperature in the church there was at the first. For you're now running a franchise for God. You've got to keep the local church going. We've got to pay the PG&E. We've got to keep all the programs running. Who cares if we're in love with Jesus? We, gotta, we all get a salary right here, just as long as they keep giving. Are you kidding? It's called uh, backsliding and hard. It's called cold and hard. It's uh, 
I'm married. Uh, we just don't kiss anymore. We barely talk to each other. Thank God for the morning paper. You don't have to talk to her. You drink coffee and read the paper. You can stay married and not be in love. Right? I know you can't say amen with your wife there, but you can, believe me. Talk to enough folks. You can be married and not be in love. And I'm not telling you not to stay married, but it's a miserable thing. What happened? We used to talk to each other. We used to enjoy each other. We used to uh, delight in each other. On and on and on. And all of a sudden, children, bills, the cares of life, and a, a thousand draining things can just pretty soon, what in the world ever got us together? Well, maybe we were in love with each other. Maybe there was a time before babies, a time before demanding jobs, and there was a time for each other. Whatever happened, uh, the termites have got into the trough, and they've eaten away all the pledges. And uh, he says, you've got to return, return to me, return to me. Remember from where you've fallen. Do your first, first works all over. It's the pathway back. And I, I must say to you, Valley, uh, our buildings won't make us successful. Uh, our attendance won't make us successful. It's staying in love with Christ. There is the true thing that we've got to pray. Are you as much in love with him as when you first met him? He's not that dull a person. We're the dull bride. He is the majestic bridegroom. Have you lost the first love? That's what someone asked me just here the other day. We, New Year's uh, Eve, we were some brothers, and someone asked me, would you uh, rather uh, pastor a bunch of seasoned churchmen or start with a bunch of rowdies like you did? Bunch of kids straight out of drugs and UC Berkeley and free love, and man, they legalized marijuana years ago in Pinole. Believe me, it was legalized. And they said, what, which group would you rather start with? I said, quite frankly, I love the rowdies. They, they get excited when they sing Amazing Grace. They never heard it before. There's a glow. Some of you are saying, are we ever going to learn any new music? Well, you don't sing the stuff we know. They sang. We sang. I can't tell you how much we used to sing spontaneously. And the band wasn't that great because it was me and my sister. That wasn't too great. She was good. I wasn't. But we could sing half the night. You know what? We couldn't get enough. We couldn't get enough. That's where I thought I'd backslid when we quit meeting on Sunday night. But the trend is people don't meet on Sunday night. They're all too tired. My generation, some way, we had, we had different kind of bodies. You know, we were weird. We didn't have enough TV and enough movies and enough pleasure. We, the greatest thing going on the earth was meeting with God's people to worship. But that gets old. God, we've got to have something different. And you go on and go on, and pretty soon... It gets to be a strain to even serve God. It gets a strain to even show up. It's just what used to be your joy. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Did you ever hear that verse? 
My wife, for instance, was growing up in a home that was being destroyed by alcohol. And uh, the refuge every week, she used to get on a bus at eight years of age by herself. The bus, I guess, came and picked her up, or she'd bum a ride all the time from eight years of age on. That's why she's always worked with children. She was saved as a child, went to church by herself, so she knows what it is to live for the Lord from an eight-year-old girl in a home that booze is destroying her mom and dad that she loved. And after 25 years, they divorced and liquor won. But said, I couldn't wait to get to church. It was like an oasis. And then all of a sudden, you get cranky in spirit, and you don't like anything. It's one reason I started Valley, is I started changing my doctrinal beliefs and begin to see the grace of God a lot more than all the rules and the legalisms, the do's and the don'ts that I grew up with that didn't really bother me. I love those people. They're going to heaven. But I wanted to preach something a little bit different. And uh, I, I start this place, couldn't get enough, couldn't get enough. And now I feel like I only barely show up once a week. I preach on Sunday mornings. I teach a Wednesday night class. Well, that's a retirement schedule. Just listening to some lectures from Geneva. They were celebrating Calvin's ministry after 500 years that uh, a man who buried his wife, who was suffering great physical problems and fled from France to get away from persecution by Rome, winds up in Geneva, and he did like in a year, he would do about, oh, a 1,000 sermons a year. There's only 365 days, friend. Uh, the, the laziness for God is amazing when you fall out of love with him. It's horrendously hard to serve a God you've fallen out of love with. It's so hard to give. It's just hard to get here because there's something better you can do when you fall out of love with him. He tells him, get back, get back, get back, or I'll remove you. And I think it's why so many new churches are always being planted and new beginnings, new beginnings, new beginnings. One generation becomes bored with God. One generation falls away from fervency for God, and, and God's just a memory. They, they can win any argument about anything, but they're not passionate in their love towards Christ. All of a sudden, and you see another group in a dingy hall, a tore-up building, and said, man, well, how can they show up? If I didn't have a nice building, I wouldn't go. Oh, you would if you loved him. If that was all there was, you'd go. For showing up isn't contingent on buildings. It's contingent. Where are the people of God that know him and love him? One more book. Turn to Jude. And then we're done. I'm not done. Turn over there right now. Got to go back. One book. And listen to what he says. Verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, and now let me just tell you a little Greek lesson here. He uses a main verb, keep yourselves in the love of God, with about four participles. 
So what, the main thing he's saying here, let me tell you how to keep yourself in the love of God. Let me tell you how to do it. Four things you got to do right here. Now watch. It's so backwards. The main verb is right down in verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. How? Participles. It says this, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith. I take that to be building yourselves up in the Word of God because the basis of our faith is the Word of God. Jude 3, contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Be in the Word of God. You notice in the bulletin, we give you a little Bible reading plan. Every year, start reading your Bible. Start getting in the Word of God. How can God talk to you if you won't listen to Him? And ask God to turn your eyes into ears as you read the Bible. If you can figure out a way to do it just where you just, as you look at it, say, I want my eyes to become ears. I'm listening to what you're saying. You've got to be building yourselves up in the Word, praying in the Holy Spirit, praying by means of the Spirit. The hardest thing Christians do is it seems to keep up a prayer life. But the surest sign you are a Christian is you cannot be a Christian and not pray. Prayer is as instinctive. If you don't know how to pray and if you don't pray, you give clear evidence you must not know God because the people of God pray. And he says, pray in the Holy Spirit. Have a prayer life in 2011. Probably the things your marriage, your children, and your personal life needs, probably nobody could supply but God. And you get things from God by prayer. Building up yourselves. Then he goes on, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And I assume that is I'm waiting with anticipation for Christ to come again. Much of evangelical church world doesn't even talk about the coming of Christ much anymore. He is coming. And those who know him long for the expectation of the full manifestation of his mercy when he rescues us from this world. Then he says, finally, and be having mercy on some. Some uh, who are doubting save others by snatching them out of the fire Show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. If we had time to look at this, I believe he's saying, involve yourself in helping people. The doubting need mercy. Those in a burning building need to be snatched. They need urgent involvement to rescue them. And then while you're talking to the soiled, the dirty be sure you don't get dirty with them. Try to get them to help without becoming soiled yourself because the prophet said, can a clean garment make a dirty garment clean? No. Can a dirty garment make a clean one dirty? Yes. So he says in Haggai, we must be sure that while we're rescuing men, we're not becoming defiled with their sins. They had a great tragedy years ago happen when one of our men got involved in counseling ministry and fell into the sins of those he was trying to help. So he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. How can I? By getting into the Word of God. 
by somewhere, somehow, if you can only kneel 15 minutes, you young mothers just lock the bathroom doors. I'm not coming out till I have devotions. Some way, get to the throne of grace. And then he says, longing, looking, don't fall in love with this temporal world. It's going to all pass away. There's more than bonuses and jobs and positions. The world and all of its lust are passing away, but he that doeth the will of God abides forever. And then, when will you get involved in helping people? Well, I love dogs. That's all right, but they're not going to heaven. I'm sorry to disappoint you. I'm into gardening. Well, good. Trees aren't going to heaven. When will you pour yourself into helping people? Man, I want us to help the poor. I want us to find fathers for these poor kids that have no one in their lives. Where do we reach? Where do we get the help? It won't be in a church that's not in love with Christ. You can't do it. We just ought to become a social club and sell memberships. But we're not a club. We are to be the people of God that are expendable for Jesus Christ. And Christ is in love with reaching people. He's not in love with money. He's not in love with your ego. He's in love with people that he went to the cross for. And if you want to keep in the love of God, you'll find out how to pray, how to get in the word, how to be longing for his coming, and start pouring your life into helping people. Love is going to outlast everything you ever do. And what you do in love, I think, will outlast anything else you do. Our Father, we are grateful to you that you loved us. And you showed it in Christ. How could we ever compare to his love? At our best, we don't love well, Lord. And we have to confess to you, our heart needs to be enlarged. We have to confess to you that sometimes we don't love you like we did at the first. Our romance has become a rut. Our Christianity has become lifeless because we're no longer getting in your presence, no longer having you change us, no longer being poured out to help other needy people. I ask, Father, deliver us from our selfish, small, small world. Anoint our eyes to see a harvest that could perish unless you thrust labors into it. We pray, thrust men and women to harvest the souls of boys and girls, men and women, before this globe is consumed in fire and eternity begins. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.